This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. A couple of reminders of links. Firstly, don't forget to check out the details of Mech 16, our upcoming conference. You can find them at mobileuserexperience.com and clicking on the conference section. And the show notes for this edition, which are also at mobileuserexperience.com, but in the podcast section. Welcome to the MEX podcast. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of MEX. And I'm Alex Kest, the co-host. Great to be back on the show together, Alex. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks, Marek. How are you doing? Yes, not bad, thanks. Not bad at all. Uh, so this is an interesting one that we have got coming up. Uh, we obviously uh, imagine that all of our listeners are well-versed in the importance of good user experience design. It's very much the theme for this podcast and this community. Uh, and most of us will also know that good design decisions flow from the quality of the research, of the insight that we have into our user behavior. What we've been wondering for some time on the podcast and also in the uh, MEX conference and and the writing that we do uh, is whether or not the methods that we're using currently are sufficient to keep up with the kind of granularity detail that we need about user behavior to really turn that insight into competitive advantage and create great digital experiences off the back of it. So this has been a discussion that has been going on for a while. And as ever, we've been searching around for people who are experts within this particular field of digital and also in related fields to try and bring some additional uh, background into the conversation. And we were introduced by Patrizia Bertini, who some of you will know from previous podcasts, uh, to Aaron Garner, who is a director at the Emotional Intelligence Academy, Aaron, it's great that you could join us for the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, welcome to the show. And obviously, you and I have spoken a fair bit um, in the run up to this. And one of the things that I was struck by uh, was that there were a great many similarities in the sort of objectives um, that we have around understanding user behavior, but that also you bring uh, a rather different approach or one that perhaps people within digital industry may not be as familiar with uh, as they could be. Um, so could you just give us a, a brief outline uh, of the kind of work that you do, in particular, this facial action coding system, which is at the heart of, of what the Emotional Intelligence Academy does? Okay, yes. At the Emotional Intelligence Academy, we Basically, we're trying to help individuals, whether that's individuals you know, in a personal sense or looking at uh, corporate business, legal or security professionals, make better decisions when it comes to people. Um, and in order to do that, we need to obviously train them or do some consultation with them in order to uh, help them with behavior analysis. So that's the the core of what we do is essentially behavior analysis and emotional awareness stuff. So um, what we do is we help people, whether they're in HR recruitment, sales, negotiation, or security, law enforcement, or intelligence agencies, um, make better decisions about people by analyzing their behavior using science 
um, but taking science into a more uh, pragmatic way. So there's a lot of uh, great academic books out there uh, that talk about behavior analysis and human behavior and things. But uh, we try our best to make sure that people get the best of the science that's out there and, and make it applicable. So it's really behavior analysis in as many contexts as people uh, need it. So Let's make it real for our listeners. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to get together uh, physically around the table to record this podcast. We're doing it over Skype. Uh, but if you are sitting down with Alex and I currently and employing some of these techniques, what kind of things would you be looking for to see how we were really feeling about being here together <laughs> on this Friday afternoon for the podcast? Okay, yeah, it's a, it's one of those things that can be a blessing and a curse as well. But um, it, if we were sitting down with the convers- and having a normal conversation, um, I tend not to be working but if i was working then it would be a case of i'm looking for your emotional response or cognitive responses uh, to the conversation as we go ahead and i'd be able to tell whether or not you're feeling more cynical about what i'm saying or you like what i'm saying or whether um you're realizing something you're doing uh is 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 not quite right and you might show me some fear perhaps so i'm looking for your emotional responses and that allows me to then engage with you in, in the right way in order to build better relationships so that's one element of it isn't just kind of you know security lie detection and that kind of thing it's it's really about understanding people in the best way so that we can form the best relationships so so that's two quite different fields and and i suppose um i i'm sort of quite keen to to understand both of those a little bit better mm-hmm. so in 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 terms of the security what sort of applications would you be looking at there and, and then also in terms of sort of relationship building as you say mm-hmm. i mean what which sort of people would be interested in 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 getting trained in in that field? Okay, so we'll we'll start off with the the emotional side. So when we look at the um, kind of the emotional skills courses that we run, that's more for people that perhaps work in talking therapies or counselling or coaching or HR recruitment, where developing a relationship so that it can be more productive and cooperative. Um, is very beneficial, obviously, again, in management leadership. So those kinds of areas, you really want to develop the relationship so that you can understand ourselves as well as the other people so that we can move forwards in the most productive and um, constructive way. So if you're working with people and you're working in teams, then that's kind of the area that we look at. Now, when it comes to the security side, uh, what we're tending to look at, especially in the world we're in at the moment, and um, today, obviously, there's more in the news um, about uh, terror attacks and things. So it's um, it's about what is the true intent of the people we're dealing with and how can we quickly make decisions on um, judging somebody's intent uh, in a security situation, whether that's uh, from an intelligence agency point of view uh, or an event security point of view or law enforcement. So um, the the science that sits behind it is exactly the same, but the application is very, very different for the two contexts, obviously. So, for example, um, a few months ago when I was flying back from, from uh, Minsk in Belarus, mm-hmm. and um, it was an early morning flight, and, and I think I was the only English person on the flight. I think the rest were, were um, uh, either Belarusian or, or possibly Russian. And I think I was the first person through uh, customs and going through the, the, the green... Uh, the green zone. I, I was wheeling my bag, uh, just a small bag, and and there's a there's a security professional standing there, um, watching me walk towards him. And you know, we sort of make eye contact, and and suddenly I start to feel very self conscious, and uh, and I look away. Um, and at that point, he he stops me, 
um, and and starts asking me questions and 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 asks me to open my bag and that sort of thing. And, and, I, and I sort of wonder whether you know I, I kind of instinctively felt self conscious and, and almost guilty, even though clearly I mean I was just you know I had a, a bag with a suit and some shoes in it and that's about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I and I suppose uh, would that security person have had some sort of training in 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 uh, behavior um, recognition and, and sort of um, and your field basically uh, to an extent obviously all, all countries and all security agencies are going to be trained in a, in a different way but they will have been given um, some pointers to look at that I can't really discuss <laughs> on this program but um, yeah so uh, but You've, you've hit the nail on the head with regards to context there. When we train people, you have to take into account the context because all of us have gone through an airport. Um, even if we know this stuff, I go through an airport and if someone watches you, you know you're in an area of um, suspicion, whether you're guilty or not. And that's going to affect your behavior. And if you don't take that into account, then um, you'll be pulling everybody over because most anxious in that situation but yeah um most security or all security agencies will have some training in some elements of behavior um, there are some that um have perhaps maybe outdated training um and they're using um you know certain types of profiling that perhaps aren't suited to today's world um you know racial, racial profiling those kinds of things which we try and stay well away from um and um there's a lot of myths being used out there. You know, sort of scratching the nose means you're lying and that kind of stuff. So uh, um, so if, if they're being given the wrong information in their training, then um, they can make the wrong decisions. So we try and we try and get the uh, uh, the best science that we can, pull that together, doing our own research as well uh, to make sure that uh, everybody that trains, um, that, we, that we try and do consultancy with um, has uh, the best level of scientific information. And I, I suppose to some extent... We sort of instinctively have a feel for a degree of what's going on. I guess it's a case of of, of fine tuning that and, and really getting underneath the skin. Um, uh, if that's not too many sort of mixed metaphors there, but 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 I, I suppose we sort of know to an extent when when someone is slightly cold towards us, even though they're smiling and saying the right things. Mm. Yeah, they're so. When, when we talk about things, so facial expressions, which is probably the the thing that's of most um, interest to um, to people listening to this podcast, um, when you're dealing with uh, UX research, you're looking at emotional responses and facial expressions uh, in some cases. So we, we've got to the place we are today by using facial expressions to to know what, how people are feeling, um, and that's something that we most of us are born with, unless um, we have some kind of um, disorder or. Um, in some cases, some autism and things like that, where we have a problem with reading facial expressions. Um, you, you see these small, subtle changes in people's faces, and you'll have this kind of instinctive reaction to, to people that you're dealing with. And you may not know consciously why you're having that reaction, but it could be that you've seen some kind of a micro expression of an emotion uh, that you didn't, you, know, <laughs> you didn't notice consciously, uh, but you did pick it up. Um, so your senses yeah. picked up the emotion, but you didn't actually uh, consciously pick it up. So, um, and then you have this gut reaction and uh, you have a feeling about somebody, but you don't, you can't really put your finger on it. Does that influence of facial expressions go two ways, Aaron, in the sense that when you're doing work as a reader, observing someone, do you have to control your own facial expressions so as not to influence what they're getting back from from you? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and I would say it's one of the biggest problems when um, people get involved with this work. 
and they start to train this. They see a micro expression. They get really excited that they've seen a micro expression and a big smile on their face. And then that obviously affects the person they're talking to. So you, you, you do have to kind of modulate your own um, expression. But my, my method is purely to be genuinely interested in another human being. If you keep that mindset um, and I'm just genuinely interested in finding out about that other person, regardless of the context, whether this is a, a more emotional skills relationship kind of context or security, I have that genuine interest, then um, yeah, I shouldn't be yeah, leaking, um, <laughs> leaking things on my face that I don't want to be seen. So one of the reasons for asking the question is that in doing a bit of research in advance of the podcast to look at some examples which might perhaps give us some tangents to explore, something that we kept coming back to was this notion that uh, there is this uh, current buzz, if you like, around the notion that um, experts themselves can become biased in some ways. And in fact, that impairs their ability sometimes to make these judgments. I mean, in the UK, we've had um, a couple of uh, infamous examples of this recently, obviously with the referendum recently, where the polls uh, and in particular the betting companies right up until the last minute uh, made an incorrect judgment call on which way that was going to go. Um, Similarly as well with the previous general election uh, in the run up to that, uh, experts had um, managed to uh, be quite far wide of of the mark in terms of predicting the outcome successfully. Um, And we came across this uh, book by a guy called Philip Tetlock, uh, which he calls Super Forecasting. Uh, And he was talking about this exact problem. And he gave quite an interesting example uh, where he was saying that during the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, the guy who was the director of the CIA at the time, when he was talking about his experience afterwards and came to write his own book about it, uh, admitted that actually um, their most seasoned experts had discounted the possibility that the Berlin Wall would ever fall. They had been so um, involved uh, in that um, that uh, they had essentially sort of bought into this kind of long-term outlook around it, which meant that they had become unable to see some of the signs that it was about to happen. And it was actually only quite late. And their uh, most junior analysts, who perhaps had a fresh pair of eyes, a certain sense of naivety, uh, who picked up on these things, and they were the ones that spotted the sequence of events that would lead to, uh, to the wall coming down. Uh, so, you know, I wonder in the work um, that you do, to what degree you have to uh, actively you know, force yourself to stay fresh uh, in the way you practice your reading uh, so that you can make sure you're getting that real purity of, of insight from uh, from the people that you're you're observing yeah it's it's a constant self-check um so uh, when we talk about attentiveness so paying attention to other people um most people jump to oh i'm paying attention to them uh, there's actually more of a focus we doing is paying attention to ourselves because uh, we can be biased very very easily um and this uh, we see time time again in in security context and law enforcement context where uh, there may well be kind of a guilt bias and this could be because of the media um you know putting pressure on uh, law enforcement agencies to you know you know find out you know who has done this or who's you know, who's responsible for this particular thing there's a lot of pressure put on people and it can force people to make decisions too quickly um and going with these biases so um, when it comes to behavior, everything we see, everything we hear, 
has to be hypothesized. Um, and this isn't, you know, a, a, a notebook and pen necessarily. We don't sit down and, you know, I saw this, this particular movement. So I have hypothesis one, hypothesis two, hypothesis three, but it has to be a, a mental process where we have to check ourselves. You know, I'm seeing some kind of behavior in a particular context. Um, it could mean this, but it could also mean this and this. And then it comes down to, the art of being able to engage with people and elicit the right information with good questioning skills to test which one of your hypotheses is the correct response um, to go with that that behavior. So yeah, we 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 stick with a hypothesis testing kind of route. Really, we we don't make decisions. A lot of body language books you'll see <laughs> on the market say if you see this, it means you know X means Y, um, and unfortunately, in human behavior, it most certainly doesn't most of the time. So. That point you mentioned about pressure, Aaron, is an interesting one because it's something that we often see in the context of digital industry as well, where the way in which user research is commissioned and the particular nuances and pressures around that can go on to have an influence on how it's used, how effective it is. Uh, A very common example is where you have quite a strongly minded founder of a startup uh, and they may be under some pressure themselves, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, say for investors, about being able to tick the box on saying, yes, we're doing things in a user-centered way. We're doing our user experience work. We're doing our user research. Uh, So they go ahead and they, they commission this kind of stuff. But the nuance of how they commission it, how that's communicated to the team that then carries out that user research and how decisions are then taken off the back of it mean that it's uh, sometimes biased from the outset. Uh, and that can be quite a challenging thing to uh, to fight against, uh, to make sure that actually not only are you getting uh, worthwhile design decisions off the back of it, um, but you're actually doing things which aren't going in the opposite direction to where your, your users want to go. Yeah, I think um, you'll always find what you're looking for is the key thing there. So it's um, yeah, if if you're looking for a particular behaviours, if you're looking for particular reactions, uh, unfortunately, you're going to you're going to find those. So you need to make sure that obviously you you leave yourself open for all possible reactions when it comes to to humans in general. So whether it is you know, law enforcement uh, and their bias towards guilt, um, they will they will look for signs of guilt. Um, and perhaps discount um, any signs of evidence, uh, innocence, sorry, that that might pop up. Um, and equally, in in this case, if you're doing some kind of user experience testing or some kind of reaction you're looking for, if you're looking only for positive, you expect positive reactions or um, you're putting too much pressure on people to get the information as quick as possible um, and not giving them the time to... Um, give the best reactions um, then um, then you're going to be in trouble so it's it's about being open it's about having the time to to observe and it's about having the time to think about what those observations might mean uh, and taking into account the context in which you're carrying out the actual research as well so is there anything within the context or anything within the behavior of the uh, people running the the research that could impact on the behavior as well and um, yeah how clean is the environment that the um, that the research is being run in. And avoiding cognitive biases um, is, is surprisingly difficult, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, as, as much as we try to be aware of, of our own thoughts and, and our own biases, it's, it's, you, you see experts in all sorts of fields mm. say things that, that clearly not uh, driven by data and, and, um, and, and quite often reveal quite strong biases that, that just don't stand up. And, and yet these people are, are extremely bright, uh, have tremendous expertise, and, and, and yet still um, are, are making 
quite fundamental errors of judgment based on on bias uh, and and so this sort of brings me on to to another thought which is you know once we're looking at user testing specifically um, and and um, how we we deal with user reactions to particular um, you know whether whether it is reacting to 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 some sort of user experience design flow or something of that kind should we be bringing in automation of some sort some sort of artificial intelligence to play here or or do we need to to all spend a lot of time and effort and and, and probably money in becoming experts in reading people's reactions <laughs> um, so yeah it's it's obviously a developing field when it comes to technology and facial expressions uh, and that in the marketplace now there is already um, some areas that are um, some companies that have produced software that will automatically use uh, facts, for example. So the facial action coding system is a way of measuring measuring movements of the face, basically, um, and coding that. And combinations of those codes will give you, obviously, the um, uh, a particular emotion set. Um, now, if you are doing emotional hotspotting, so if, if somebody sends me a video and I'm looking at some kind of user reaction and I'm looking for emotional hotspots, um, I can use facts. But it's quite a long process. So having software is very, very useful. Uh, but unfortunately, artificial intelligence uh, at the moment isn't in a place where it can hypothesize like a human being. So the, the, the software we've seen is, it does have some degree of accuracy, but it can't, for example, differentiate maybe between anger and deep thought. So if somebody is thinking very deeply about something or they're looking at something as, as part of the user testing and they have a reaction, which is deep thought, some of this software may look at that, see the lowered brows and, and kind of the change in the eye aperture and, and count that as, as anger or frustration when in fact it's just cognitive loading. So it, until the artificial intelligence um, gets to a place where it can hypothesize and take into account the context in which the research is being done uh, and maybe a uh, baselining of the, the, the users themselves to check, you know, what do they look like when they think and is that the same as when they're angry? Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we're definitely getting very, very close. Um, and we're also working with um, uh, Manchester Metropolitan University at the moment looking at uh, a piece of technology that uh, will also identify um, micro-expressions as well as the more macro um, expressions. Are there other areas, Aaron, where you feel that the integration with digital technology could be useful to the work that you're doing? Because I take your point that at the moment, artificial intelligence, much as it has become very much um, you know, of the moment in the news and the amount of deal flow going on around it, may not be ready to do this in a fully automated way. Um, but are there things around, for instance, being able to combine uh, the human observations that you're doing as an individual with, for instance, some of the rich data sets which are now being thrown off by mobile devices, for instance, being able to see direct uh, video imagery of people's faces from the screen of their mobile device as they go through a particular app, uh, being able to combine that with sensor data about you know where on the screen they're looking or where they're uh, pressing, how quickly they're completing certain actions. Can those sort of things uh, provide you with a better overall picture 
than uh, just doing the the facial observations alone i think so i mean uh, we take a, a more holistic approach anyway so we we look at the the face the body the voice verbal style verbal content um as well as the uh, psychophysiology as well kind of the stress responses so you need all of those things so you know what people are saying what people are doing with their bodies and uh, in general so you need everything uh, if you've got some kind of um uh, an input from a, a device um, that can that can monitor the facial expressions that frees up your your observation for the other channels so any kind of combined approach is something we're all for ideally um, with with our training comes from a different context in that we we want to train people to be able to pick up on all of the channels of communication at the same time but that is a big ask um, so if you've got some piece of technology that can help you do that uh, that's fantastic so if you've got something that can pick up the facial movements, um, and then something that picks up uh, some kind of voice stress analysis as well, so you can hear the changes in the um, the acoustics as well. Um, and then you, it leaves you open to actually um, uh, look at the other channels as well. So it's it's it, it's great to have technology building up, um, but it really does need to be combined with um, a human as well. In in our opinion, it sounds like you know it's very much uh, um, a sliding, evolving scale for practitioners of this kind of analysis such as yourself how long has it taken you to get to the point where you are today and did you feel like as you went through that there were particular sort of breakthrough stages where you felt able to combine analysis of uh, a number of things at any one time and, and were able to advance your own art form i'm going back uh, with with facial action coding for example um, that that was my, I had a very strong face bias. I started off as a, a facial action coder, so I was um, quite strongly biased there. Um, and then so bringing all of the channels channels in to the, to the point when you can you can look at you know, six channels of information coming from a human being takes a, a long time and a lot of practice. I'm in a position where um, my work involves doing that on most days. So um, yeah, we practice doing it. But we don't expect people to do a, a three-day course and then, um, and then they, can, they can take in you know, six channels of information and they're coding it like the matrix. You know, it's, um, it's not something we'd expect. So it, it does take a long time. Within an hour's training, you can start to see micro-expressions and those kinds of things. So you know, anybody can go on to the um, micro-expression training tool. And they can, they can do that for an hour and they'll be able to see micro-expressions. So that's not, uh, that's not a big problem. But then... Being able to take that information and and think, okay, this is what I saw. This is what was happening at the time. This is the question that was being asked, or the the particular area of this um, this test that was being worked on at the time. This is what I think that might mean um, for uh, for the development or uh, for a security situation. So it's it's that next step. You know, seeing seeing is one thing, but what might it mean is is the next step. Um, so being able to actually apply it and make a difference uh, in your role. That's the biggest step. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, okay, I, I want to take a little diversion here uh, and then come back in a roundabout sort of a way to some of the uh, specific areas where opportunities may be emerging to employ these sort of techniques within digital. Um, it's going to sound very tangential, but um, you know, stick with us on this. Uh, Alex, I know in your research, you have been looking at the current phenomena of the day, which is Pokemon Go. Uh, and I think actually this might provide us with a, a bit of a link into um, 
the other part of this that we want to explore later. Um, what was your interest in, in Pokemon Go in relation to this? First of all, I, I suspect that uh, everyone listening to this knows what Pokemon Go is, but just in case they don't, um, let me briefly explain. It's it's augmented reality um, game in which the uh, user. Uh, goes around their physical location, their geography, um, and by which I mean literally walking around your street and whatever else, using the um, various uh, sensors within the the device they own, whether it's a, a combination of camera and GPS and so forth. And this allows them to find um, uh, various animated characters in their real world, which they then can capture and earn points and, and whatever else. Now, I'm quite scared of downloading this game because I suspect I'll get addicted to it. Um, <laughs> so so I, I am, I'm resisting. <laughs> you never know. You um, might find you have a pokey stop outside your, your very own house, Alex. It, well, it might even be, you know, in, in, my, in my kitchen. And this would be terrible because I would end up, you know, doing all sorts of uh, crazy things. And, and, and I, have to, I have to avoid getting into this game. Uh, Alan, uh, what about you? Have you come across this yet? I, I have. And I must admit, um, I, was, I, I, I went to try and download it, but it's not available in the UK yet, apparently. So <laughs> that's it's incredibly me. frustrating. <laughs> I've been wanting to add people to my Pokedex and you just can't do it because you know, most of the people in the UK aren't on the game yet. <laughs> um, but but my my understanding is it has now launched in the UK. Oh, has it? Oh, wow! Oh, um, so you shouldn't have said it's, that. It's, it's it's sort of being rolled out across the Europe um, this the, uh, right now. So it's 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 now in the UK and Belgium and Germany, uh, oh. and I think also in in Spain. But it's it's what what really fascinated about me this game is is a combination of a couple of things. Um, you're talking about a technology, this augmented reality technology that really hasn't achieved the mainstream, despite it being talked about for several years. Um, I think that uh, the fe- first time I got involved with Mex back in 2010, six years ago, we were talking about augmented reality then, um, and we were looking at it in terms of you know how it could be used within, say, advertising because advertising is often looking at um, these new technologies, but it, it really hasn't taken off. And then suddenly you have this, uh, effectively it's a sort of um, uh, mass um, online uh, multiplayer role-play game being, being, um, being, being played right across the globe um, using augmented reality, and it's taking off at a remarkable rate. And, and um Anyone who looks at, for example, Twitter will just be inundated by by talk of Pokemon, and and some of the crazy things that have happened. Um, a couple of guys in San Diego stepped off a cliff. Uh, you, you've you've seen people almost get hit by um, by moving traffic and, and 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 all sorts of things because they've been caught up in this game. Um, and but the the phenomenal rise of of it um, has clearly given Nintendo a big uh, boost to its share price. But what really fascinated me is how is it that a technology that has failed to catch the the, the attention of of um, ordinary people and 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 uh, game designers and all sorts of other people up until this point, and it's suddenly you, you have a turnaround that means that it gets picked up very very quickly. So I, I don't know how you could possibly have predicted such rapid take up and and. So the question for me is, you know, if you're trying to understand user behavior 
on an individual basis, but also mass user behavior, um, really, you, you can only find out what's going to happen once once it's being trialed for real in vivo. That's the really intriguing part about this. But it, it does uh, you know, have some interesting uh, precedent as well. If you look at um, the company behind this, which I understand is Nintendo, is that right? I believe so, yeah. N- Nintendo is one of yeah. the owners in the in the company um, that set it up. It's it's um, I think it's called Niantic is the actual um, company behind it. Interesting, which is the, the Google spin-off, uh, or they were acquired by Google, I believe, and um, have been sort of kept as a separate uh, entity because they also did a, an app called Field Trip, um, which uh, is based again around this idea of sort of overlaying all kinds of interesting places on the world, uh, but much more in a, a sort of guidebook kind of go out and explore your environment kind of way rather than the, the gamified way of, of Pokemon. Um, but, it, it, you know, they've obviously had this experience and Nintendo as well as a company have had these experiences where they've been able to um, take things which on paper, uh, if you like, don't seem like they would fly. And yet when they get them into hands of users, they do. And, and you wonder to what extent uh, that comes from an ability to see beyond what users are actually telling them uh, in their user research and make those kind of tangential leaps which take a product to a great place uh, versus just a, an utter single-mindedness behind the creation of these things where they just have you know a particular genius within the product department who is pushing this through regardless because they know it's going to end up being a good experience for people when it arrives on the market uh, and uh, you know, the number of organizations which are able to do that is minuscule but they do crop up uh, every now and again um, but you know when that happens in a way which as you say generates such mass adoption unexpectedly for a technology which has existed for a, a great many years even predating you know, our experiences with it at mex in 2010 you know it was around long before then as well it really does raise some interesting questions about whether it would have been possible if they'd have done user testing with this to spot those clues, which would have suggested it was going to be the success that it could go on to be. Well, we and we had some 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 experts that came out and said, you know, th- th- this game is 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 boring. It's very shallow, and and you know, that's the sort of thing that might have come up in in user testing. You know, this is a shallow game. It's of no interest, but that probably would have re- revealed some sort of again some sort of bias on the on the perspective of the user without really understanding. The, the mass adoption effect, the the, the 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 multiplayer gamification that that is possible from from such a simple game. Well, let's speculate a little bit here. I mean, Aaron, in your field of expertise, um, are you able to sense to what degree people are being influenced by the actions of those around them when they're giving responses? Say in uh, focus group testing, where you might have multiple participants together, uh, are you able to get a sense of that um, and how that might play into something like this, where it would seem that there is an effect which is being generated, if you like, by the sort of validation of people that we know on social media or people that you know in the street uh, are out there actively um, exhibiting these behaviours. Therefore, it would seem to give users themselves license to try it uh, and, and to enjoy the thing for themselves in a way where they might not do as individuals. Are you able to pick up on that sort of group effect within those environments? Yeah, I mean, we, we see that kind of thing with regards to, you know, in our training, if we're doing some kind of a, an, an exercise in, you know, what do we think about this behavior on this particular video? For example, you will tend to find uh, if we get people to write down their responses, 
you're going to get you're going to get lots of different responses. But if we get one person to 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 speak out or or watch their reaction, and everybody's looking at each other, it will just ripple through. So um, if one person behaves in one way, then you're going to have the the pressure of the group to conform uh, to the same reaction. So we we could have a, something you know if, if enough people say this is great, other people are going to say it's great too. But yeah, we get it in the in the case of people making judgments on lies and truth. So that that's when it becomes bit of a problem so um if enough people yeah we need that one person to to stay objective um and and look at them because they will be influenced by the group in the most part as i said i mean this um pokemon go example yeah is quite a, a tangential sort of a link but one of the reasons I, I was keen to bring it in is i think it um brings us back a little bit to this question of how you make most effective use of user insights over the long term so regardless of whether they're coming from um, an approach such as the one that you follow, Aaron, or other types of user research approaches, always there's that sense that you have a piece of research which is captured in a moment in time uh, and then maybe used to make some kind of design decision which is then rolled out to users uh, and can be tested. Um, but of course, that doesn't always work, regardless of whether you're using uh, a method like the facial action coding system or whether you're using something uh, based around click logs or a more sort of uh, digitally generated data set. Um, ultimately, you have done a piece of user research. It's set at a point in time. You can then go off and do something with it, and then you might come back to it later. Uh, and it starts to get us thinking about this notion of how can we record those results, regardless of the way in which we, we've done the testing? How can we record them in such a way which allows us to go back and question them again in the future? If, for instance, we end up seeing an unexpected effect, it's very possible that the team behind Pokemon at Nintendo and, and Niantic and the other organizations involved um, themselves didn't expect the mass effect that they've got and may want to go back and look at some of the user research that was done with this and ask some additional questions. Uh, so do you think there are particular best practice approaches we should be following when we think about how we store that initial research in a way which allows it to be functionally useful for as long as possible in the future. Yeah, I mean, um, from a point, my point of view, um, as as a, a practitioner and looking at this kind of um, information, looking at emotional responses, it's 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 the the frame rate. You know, what kind of quality are we are we doing to actually record people's reactions in the first place? The actual uh, existence of micro expressions. Well, it goes back to Paul Ekman's work when he was he was looking at um, the psychiatric patients. I don't know whether you know this, but looking at the psychiatric patient and, and and they were saying that they felt absolutely fine and they wanted to go home for the weekend to see their family and and then uh, they were they were released uh, and then it wasn't until the the patient then came back feeling guilty because they were actually going to take their lives that they then looked back at the footage to say, well, what did we miss? Um, so this kind of um, what did we miss and looking back is is very, very important. And to have that information, to be able to go back and frame by frame, frame by frame and and, and really check those reactions. So you know, having the 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 best uh, the best quality of footage that we can have um, from a video analysis point of view to really see people's reactions um, and equally having the best um, audio that recording as well is fantastic because there's a there's a lot to be to be heard as well as to be seen. So, you know, what people are saying, uh, what people are 
what people are doing uh, and if there's any contradictions between those as well. So um, we really do need the, the, the best quality um, of recorded information. Is there a, a minimum frame rate that you require for this kind of work where you can be happy that you're, you're making um, you know, the, the most uh, decision with the, the greatest level of certainty? Uh, so, I mean, the standard framework of you know thirty frames per second or something is 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 what you're typically going to get. But obviously, there's a a lot better frame rates that, that to be had right now. Um, so, looking at thirty frames per second is is fine, um, and that's where a lot of the initial research was done onto uh, facial behaviour in particular, twenty five frames thirty frames per second. But uh, as as far above that as possible, um, we can go the the best. So if we can get into it, you know, kind of the hundred frames per second plus, uh, that will be fantastic. How because that, that that then allows for for time to be able to see you know, micro expressions. Bearing in mind they're generally one twenty fifth of a, a second. Um, um, there's research to suggest suggest they may be faster than that. So if somebody has a an expression um, that is faster than one twenty fifth of a second, then uh, twenty five frames per second film isn't going to catch it. So. so have you followed any of the developments around these ultra high frame rate cameras? So I'm thinking back here to an example. I think we showed. Uh, at MEX one year in relation to uh, some of the things which might become possible on mobile devices several years into the future where they were filming um, at incredibly high frame rates, things like the explosion of a bag of flour and you're yeah. able to see this incredible detail. I forget the exact, but I think they were sort of up into the thousands of, of frames per second at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. Um, and, you know, our, our partners at uh, Manchester Metropolitan have access to the, the kind of high frame rate stuff as well. So the work we're doing with facial expressions with them, um, we can use those frame rate cameras, which are, are fantastic. Um, but um, you can get some really good results. I know what you're talking about as well, because my uh, my children watch the uh, watch those guys on YouTube that do all those of experiments. And uh, I can sit for an hour watching those videos. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty compelling watching. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, so, Alex, at a, a more um, practical level with this, um, I think it, it also raises this question about uh, the longevity of, of user insights and in particular how you um, connect insights maybe across multiple batches of, of tests and how you're able to sort of trace the long-term relationship between the way you change the design of a particular product, be it software or service or whatever it is, and where that user research came from. Now, I know in the work that you're doing with your startup because you know i've been talking about this a little bit over the last few weeks this is something that you've been thinking about um what are some of the practical challenges that you've encountered doing this on the the startup front so that you can uh, get a good sense of um that sort of long-term flow of, of user behavior in relation to particular features well I, I i i suppose some of it is is simply procedural in terms of how how do you capture what people are sharing um, how do you get under the skin of what they're saying? So um, quite often if, if you receive a, a batch of feedback that's written, um, it'll tell you one thing and then you get into a conversation um, and you discover some quite different things that, that really matter. And, and then you have to then ask the questions actually, so what does this mean anyway in terms of developing the product? So, I mean, to, 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 to be fairly concrete about it, I received, for example, uh, an email with, say, sort of seven or eight bullet points from uh, a test user. Uh, and, and they were quite interesting, actually. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to question these further and, and got into a two-hour Skype conversation. And 
looking back over my notes and comparing that against the initial bullet points, there was quite a difference between what had been originally reported and what was then said. Um, and um, what was the, what was actually revealed in, in, in speech rather than text was of a more uh, emotional, um, had a much more emotional texture to it. But And, and that kind of allowed me to, to really delve in a bit further. And then eventually... Um, getting past that, you know, it would be great if this could be done. You actually get to the to the nub of, well, possibly what the the real problem is is this other thing, um, and you know, if this other thing were fixed, then these other problems that you know I've been I've been talking about, which are of an emotional kind, get resolved. And and um, I, I I suppose these aren't quite the same as as looking at you know the facial recognition side of things, but you can certainly get a lot more from 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 tone of voice um, even if it's not a face-to-face conversation um, but tone of tone of voice and 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 sort of the emotional I guess it's a combination of sort of pitch and volume and so forth that you get in people's in people's voices when they're explaining certain issues yeah. um, so I, I found that very useful well there is um, an old adage with customer experience work about the point at which the emotional result from a particular encounter separates from the functional result. And you quite often find this within uh, encounters between uh, customers and big brands, where there's a point at which um, if the organization can get the emotional tone of their response to that particular complaint or incident right, even if they have not yet solved the functional problem, for that particular customer, the customer's levels of satisfaction at that point in the overall sort of flow of the complaint procedure go up markedly because once they feel that they're being understood by the organization, even if they've not yet got to an outcome which solves the original problem, there's that growing sense of faith that it will be solved and that this is an organization that's on their side. And I think this is true in the sort of typical customer service flow you might experience going through, say, a telephone call center. But it can also be true as well within uh, software design, where if you're able to communicate things to users, little bits of reassurance throughout the process, which let them know that, yes, you may not have got to the particular outcome uh, you desire just yet but we're helping you along the way to to get there Um, that can really change the overall satisfaction with the user experience and crucially it can stop you losing users permanently at various points which otherwise would have represented terminal breaks within the experience flow Mm, indeed yeah and and i I guess a slightly different thing and and this really does and it's still talking about user user testing and and but it relates very much to user testing within the um the early stage startup where um, as a founder you're likely and indeed ought to be getting involved in user testing some of your early testers are likely to be uh, people who are close to you and uh sometimes the emotional response that is revealed on people's faces can actually have a slightly negative impact on you on, on, a, on an emotional level because you realize that, of course, the product that you've put out is not perfect. At, at the you know the first iteration of the product isn't perfect, but um, you're, you you know it's it's difficult for for the uh, for the test user to to hide the emotion of well this is slightly disappointing. Um, so you also have to be aware that that's going to come through as as a as a founder. I think there's a, um, uh, uh, an issue there as well with regards to uh, modulation of responses because uh, a lot of people, especially if they're people that are, are known to you, 
Um, and we see this a lot in, in personal situations and relationship situations where um, are we measuring their reaction or are we measuring their response because they're very, very different things. You know, we have a, a lot of display and feeling rules that we bring in um, because of certain social contexts. So are we measuring the um, the reaction to, to the stimulus or are we actually seeing the the modulated response? So it's 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 are, are we catching it quick enough, or are we only seeing their, um, you know, the, the smile on their face, but we didn't catch that that glimpse of frustration, um, you know, half a second before that. So it's it's what part of the response we're actually seeing as well, um, and is there any kind of reason for display or feeling rules to kick in? Could, could you explain a little bit more about the difference between reaction and response, uh, Aaron? I think this is quite an interesting topic. Yeah, so um, if, if you're presented with a, a particular stimulus, whether that's in user testing or if whether that's in some uh, you know, context of walking through the jungle and seeing a snake, um, you know, you'll see some kind of a stimulus that creates an emotional response. And your system will have a reaction to that. Um, so that's that's what you want to measure. Obviously, in user testing, you want to measure people's actual um, reaction um, to uh, to a, a product. Now, if that's the case, um, that, that's great. But what often happens is because of the context set or because of uh, politeness rules, social context, we then modulate that response. So uh, if, if people um, don't feel they, that, that they can give their true response, they'll quickly modulate their, their emotional response. They'll sense that they're becoming frustrated or angry, and then they'll try and suppress that and replace it with something else, generally a smile. Um, so it's one of the easiest things to use. Um, so that the, the key thing is, are we catching that response um, or are we catching the initial reaction? Because um, it will depend from culture to culture on how much that happens and person to person as well to an extent. So um, it's, it's what we're measuring and are we measuring the right thing? With uh, all of these different techniques that, that we've been discussing, um, I suppose there's an argument that um, – all of them have different levels of applicability depending on what stage you're at within uh, a digital product development process or what particular situation you're you're trying to interpret. Um, from what you've seen so far, Aaron, from the conversations that we've had about some of the things that are going on within the area of digital experience design, do you have a sense in your own mind uh, as to which stage of the, the product development process or, or where this might plug most effectively into uh, that, that overall flow and how it can be used to really um, most effectively deepen the level of insight that we're getting from users uh, and thereby lead to, to better design decisions? Uh, I mean, is this something you would anticipate being most useful at a very early stage of product development or, or something which you think becomes more applicable um, as a product? becomes more mature um i i think yeah well in, in both ends obviously but uh, i i think early early on is good um especially when it comes to you know navigation and those kinds of things where you have people that are, are having problems with a, a particular product or an app um so catching those frustrations early with regards to simple navigation uh, on simple um, product design is is very useful so um having difficulties with those kinds of things now um uh, it's obviously facial and uh, voice and verbal style kind of uh, aspects are very interesting to look at uh, to test not only the reactions that you're getting, but then the certainty of the reactions. So are they really sure about how they really felt? Um, so uh, I think there's different levels that you could look at, but certainly I think earlier on um, is better. And then obviously final product testing as well. But um, the, the earlier you can get that reaction so you don't go down the wrong route, the, the better. Yeah, I would very much agree with that. And I think um, 
from what I've learned uh, of the methods that uh, you practice, um, it's something which potentially could actually benefit you know, throughout the, the the product development cycle. And one of the things we um, really espouse with MEX is this idea that user research uh, isn't something which should be conducted in just a linear way where you do a bit you know, upfront and then you take some decisions off the back of it. And then when you come to do the next iteration of the product, you might go back and do a bit more. It should be something which is uh, very much uh, intrinsic to the overall cycle and should be being built in at every level. And I think there's certainly a, a role for that here. Uh, now, um, we're hoping that you're going to be able to participate at our event later in the year and talk a little bit more about this and hopefully set up a bit of a dialogue between um, our different communities, because I think there's a lot that could be shared between them. Uh, but are there particular things which um, are getting you excited about what's happening in the area of, of digital and mobile um, as you see it from, uh, fr from the work that you're doing? Are there particular things that you've been tracking which you're keen to learn more about? I think from my point of view, the automation is fantastic because it, it does help us um, with regards to, you know, it takes a, a bit of pressure off because uh, the key skill is we're finding out how people, and this comes back to Alex's point as well, is is being able to talk to somebody. Um, that's when you get the, the best information. So the observation is great. You can then make some hypothesis, but until you talk to them afterwards uh, and test those hypothesis on reaction is, is one thing. So um, the automation is, is very, very interesting. Uh, you'll still need a human being to interpret that uh, that automation as well, but uh, I, I'm I'm following that that development with regards to technology. I know some of my colleagues are as well. I've got a uh, a guy that um, was on one of our training courses looking at um, uh, integrating technology and and looking at emotion in the arts. So he's looking at how he can use technology to measure um, emotion in the arts as well. So it's it, it's interesting um, to look at this from a, a technological point of view. And so that's the area I'm looking at, uh, not because it takes pressure off me work-wise, um, <laughs> but it, it can help us to look at other areas um, and then look at the elicitation side um, and getting the best information rather than just focusing on the observation side. Yeah, and, 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 and the sort of associated with that is, uh, you know, for me, for me is this idea that if you're communicating with a machine, um, for, for the machine to really understand you, it's got, it's got to understand more than just what you're saying, but actually understand mm. the, the other channels of communication that you've been referring to, Aaron. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, you know, until, you know, a chatbot can really pick up on all of those things, the, 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 the dialogue that you're going to have is going to be pretty basic. But also the flip side of that is un until the machine can also uh, communicate in, in channels that aren't just uh, verbal or, or, or text, then, then there's also going to be a sort of a, a fundamental disconnect between machine and human. Yeah, it's, it'd be great to be at that point. But um, it, I think a big part of this, this, this whole field is, is that human interaction. I wouldn't ever want to see the human being taken completely out anyway. Um, it comes back to my, um, my genuine interest in other human beings. So if it was just me looking at a computer or them looking at a computer, that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't float my boat anymore. Um, but uh, the, um, yeah, I, th I think it's really important that we get to that point, but I, I can't see that happening in the near future where you can have a um, a proxy human um, in front of you on a on, on a computer screen. Um, I don't think we're we're anywhere near that yet. So it's it comes down to the basic observations, uh, making hypotheses, and then being able to interact with people in the right way and ask the right questions uh, to really understand uh, where they're coming from. Well, that's reassuring, I must say. <laughs> 
Well, as we talked about a bit earlier, I think that um, question of motivation is always a really important one with any type of, of user research. And often you end up seeing uh, the most effective user research, the most valuable user research coming from those who um, aren't necessarily the most experienced practitioners in their fields, but they're the most motivated because, as you say, they have that genuine desire and curiosity to learn about the unspoken things, to learn about those additional motivations, to push that little bit further to understand the people who they're seeing interacting with these uh, products. Uh, and that's where the real quality of, of user research comes from um, above and beyond you know the number of years you've been doing it or the number of qualifications you have on your cv i think that genuine desire uh, to observe and, and to learn about others is so crucial to it all yeah i would completely agree <laughs> yeah no it's uh, it's really important and i think if you're in any of the uh, any of any people-centered role whether that's hr recruitment or you know, user testing any 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 role security whatever if if you're not genuinely interested in in people then you're going to have you're going to struggle with those biases that we talked about earlier because you know this constant self-check of you know okay this is what i think is going on for this person right now uh, but is that something that's going on for me because i need to know that i understand them so is there something i'm thinking about so then I need to self-check myself to make sure that I can really genuinely understand them. Um, and if if we're not, uh, we don't have that kind of mindset, then we'll just go with our cognitive biases and we'll make decisions and, and not really worry too much about it. So and we can go down the wrong path then. Well, that's a suitably inspirational note on which to draw things to a close, I think. And it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and thank you for sharing um, what you're doing in your field. We're going to be looking forward to hearing more about it at the MEX event uh, later in the year. Um, but thanks very much indeed for taking the time to, to come on. Thank you very much. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. As always, you can find the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Do please get in touch by email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or on Twitter at mechsfeed. And last but not least, do please check out the details of our upcoming Mech 16 conference in London. You can find them at mobileuserexperience.com in the conference section. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.